<laughs> Amen. 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 I like uh, Wednesday night when we played that video. I love the, the part of the video that we showed Wednesday night that Brother Paulie was describing what revival is. And um, he said it's hard to define. It's easier to describe it. And he said uh, really uh, the way revival looks is it looks like Jesus. And he said we ought to be praying that God would allow the Holy Spirit to cut out of our lives anything that doesn't look like Jesus and to put into our lives everything that looks like Jesus because we are to be ambassadors for Christ. We're to be showing this world the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but uh, you know the, the whole reason we have the name Christian uh, was something that took place in the New Testament in the early church where people were, they meant it as a slur. They meant it as a degrading thing as they... Uh, called them Christians, and it meant to be little Christs. In other words, you're to be like Christ. And um, they meant it as a mockery. Now, here's this man that we crucified, and y'all are just like him. I wish, I wish that we could be worthy of the title Christian in most of our lives. Uh, the truth is, I often fail. I know I'm saved. And we often use the term saved and being a Christian interchangeably, but they're not so. To be a Christian is to be Christ-like and uh, while we can be saved, we may not always be as Christ-like as we should. And uh, I loved that when he was talking about revival and having the power of God on your lives. That really it comes down to being like Christ. And uh, we're going to teach a little bit more on that in the weeks ahead. And uh, there's a few more videos. I talked to Brother Paulie this week and uh, just shared with him my heart on what we were wanting to do here. And uh, he encouraged me in that and then said, uh, Brother, I'll give you all the resources you need. from." Because I was asking him permission to use his uh, videos last week. And he said, you can use anything I've got. He said, and if it is a help, then praise the Lord for it. Uh, but uh, pray that God will bless in this study. We're going to be dealing with it uh, mostly on Wednesday nights. We have some messages this morning. We'll have a message on uh, revival and the power of God on our lives. And pray that God will use it. Uh, I don't want us to just have revival. I like, uh, I like what he said. He said we ought to have a life of revival. Our lives ought to be in a revived uh, state all the time. And I love that thought. Uh, after all, that is God's desire, isn't it? Uh, the Bible says He came that we might have life, and that we might have life more what? More abundantly. That's God's desire. For us to live on the mountaintops. to live Not, not that we're not going to have valleys, but in our spirit, we ought to always be on that mountaintop. We ought to always be up there rejoicing in who God is. And uh, 
Anyway, we're going to, I don't want to do that. We'll preach the message and then have Sunday school next hour maybe. <laughs> Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 2. <coughs> Nehemiah chapter 2. We started this chapter last week. I love the story of Nehemiah. And uh, there were some walls that were broken down and gates that had been burned with fire. And Nehemiah is broken hearted over it. He, he feels that it is, and by the way, this is true. He feels that it is a reproach. Not just to the nation of Israel, but they, he believes it's a reproach to the God of Israel. That the cities still lay in ruins, that the walls were still down, and the gates were still burned with fire. And that ought to be said in our lives. When things are broken down in our lives, they're not built up. They're not what they ought to be. The truth is, we're not just bringing a reproach on ourselves. We're bringing a reproach to the cause of Christ. And he's burdened about this to the point of sorrow and uh, he's worked and labored. He came to the king. and We saw some of that last week as he comes to the king in chapter 2, in the early part of the chapter. <coughs> and he begins to ask the king to uh, uh, give him some materials and some supplies uh, to be able to go and to take care of rebuilding the wall. We got down to verse number uh, 9 and 10 last week as we ended up. I'm going to begin in verse 9. And uh, good to see you, Brother Richard. God bless you. Good to have you here. Verse number 9, Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Uh, this is interesting to me because he had asked the king for a large amount of things. Have you ever, and I mentioned this just briefly last week, have you ever thought about this? We, we often ask God for very small things because sometimes we don't think He can handle the big ones. Have you ever, I, I mean, even though we're people of faith, how many of you have done that before? I know I have. I know there's been times I've hesitated. Well, Lord, that's a big thing. I don't know if I should pray for that one. Why not expect great things from God and attempt great things for God and just let God do what He's going to do? The king asked Nehemiah what he wants, and Nehemiah could have said, you know, hey, I need uh, some time to go visit my family back in Jerusalem. But he doesn't. He says, oh, I want you to supply the materials to build it. I want you to give me the king's authority to build it. So in verse 9, we find that he comes to these governors that are beyond the river. <coughs> The ones that Artaxerxes has set up to rule that area and keep those uh, cities under subjection. He comes to those governors and he gives the king's letters. The king had, uh, verse number nine, now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So not only did he get all that he asked for, but the king said, just in case, <laughs> I want to send something better. And you ever ask God for something and he does exceeding beyond what you've even asked him for? That's the case with Nehemiah. In a little while, when he starts talking to people, and he starts talking about the good hand of his God upon him, Nehemiah knows wherewith he speaks. Wherever he speaks. He, he understands the good hand of his God upon him, beyond what he had asked for. Verse number uh, 10, When Sanballat the Horonite, Nehemiah the servant, of the, uh, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was... Come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Now, understand that Samballat and Tobiah uh, were men of uh, recognition, at least men of renown. They, it doesn't specifically state that they were one of the governors. I personally believe that they had some type of leadership role and authority that was given to them because of the influence that they seemed to have on the people around them. And uh, the thing is, as we get to verse number 10, uh, it says that they were, they were sorrow, they were grieved because someone sought the well-being of the nation of Israel. And by the way, isn't it amazing to you, and, and I know it has been to me, 
Christians, the only thing we want to do is try to, to share the gospel, which is good news to those that are lost. And yet, look at how many people ridicule and despise and are grieved that there's a group of people out there that want nothing more than to be a help to people. They want nothing more than to give them the good news of eternal life, that their sins can be forgiven. And there's always going to be, when we do God's work, there's always going to be that opposition. Because Satan is, is diametrically opposed to whatever it is that God's doing. And if God's doing something, and even if He's beginning to move, and He's beginning to do some things, and we look around as Christians, and we rejoice, and we say, boy, God sure is doing something, you can rest assured Satan's going to do something to throw a chink in the machinery. He's going to do something to try to stop it, because he does not like what God is doing in this world. And Nehemiah comes in and he says, listen, there's something broken here. I want to fix it. I want to make it to where it's no longer a reproach to God. And he gets criticized by these leaders. Now, if it was you and I in Nehemiah's place, many of us would say, oh, okay. And we would turn around and go back to the king. But I love verse number 11. Look what it says. So I came to where? <laughs> Jerusalem. And was there three days. You know what? These guys came to him, men of authority, men that had some influence at least in the area. They criticized him. They're grieved at this. And yet Nehemiah, and Nehemiah knew of it. And yet Nehemiah says, you know what? It doesn't bother me. I'm going to keep on doing what God has put in my heart to do. And can I tell you this? There's going to be a day, and I posted something even this week of a, a pastor being arrested for having church, for conducting a church service. Folks, it's coming. It's coming. And there's going to be some ridicule. And there's going to be some opposition. There's going to be some people that are saying, you're not allowed to do this. You're not going to do this. And we're going to have a choice. I would like to think that I would remain true. I would like to say, and it's easy, this side of persecution. To say, I would do it. I would be firm. I would be resolved. I would go to prison for it. Or I would be beaten for it. Or I would be willing to lay down my life for it. And it's easy on this side of persecution to say those things, isn't it? But the truth is, none of us know what our spiritual character is until the time comes. May we prepare our hearts before that possibility comes. And purpose in our hearts before then that we will not be moved. We're going to be steadfast in these areas. We don't have to be mean. We don't have to be cruel. But we're not going to budge. Sanballat and, and Tobiah, they're going to come and they're going to criticize. Guess where I'm going? I'm going on to Jerusalem. Because that's where God told me to go. You know, And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. Did not debtor him. Didn't cause him to, uh, to say, well, I'm frustrated. Boy, there's some people and there's opposition against me. And these people have the ability to rise up a group of people and incite them against me. Nehemiah said, I went on to Jerusalem. In fact, I was there three days. He said, it didn't even bother me. You know? And I love reading 11, because it, verse number 11, because it almost, almost makes it sound like Nehemiah got joy out of it, out of just going on. And by the way, anytime we take a stand for God in the face of persecution, there will be joy. Through the sorrow, through the pain, through the suffering, there will always be the joy. And uh, we find in verse number 12, as he gets to Jerusalem, it says, And I rose in the night, and you know, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I believe all of it is profitable. Why is it so important that we know that he rose in the night? 
You know, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically why. I'll give you a few thoughts, all right? I'll give you some Gregology, some thoughts on this. Nehemiah needed a time alone with God without distraction. I believe you and I need those times. The day gets busy. There's bustling around. There's people around. There's a lot of things that are going on. He rises in the night. The Bible says, I and some few men with me. And I tell you this, Nehemiah was in need of surrounding himself with godly men that would pray with him what God would do in this, in this matter. He has these few men with him. I believe they were men that Nehemiah knew he could trust. Nehemiah knew that these men were men that loved the Lord. Now you say, Brother Greg, where is that? Well, it's not in the Greek. It's not in our English. But I believe it's important to understand that there must be a reason why God told us He rose in the night and why He only took a few men with Him and didn't share. And you'll see this. He says, Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do. And uh, I think there are some times where God gives us a leading and, and something that we believe He wants us to do with our lives that we need to get alone with Him. And we need to make sure that we have everything in line, that we know what we're supposed to do, that we have God's hand of blessing upon it. I've heard a lot of people say, "Uh, Pastor, I believe God's leading me to do this. And God wasn't anywhere near it. (laughs) And uh, you could tell because later on, after they went and did that, it was a flop and it was a failure. And if God had led them to do it, it wouldn't have been that. Numerous times I've heard people say, well, God led me, Pastor, God led me. We need to be careful using those words. When it comes time for us to say, God is leading me, there needs to be an absolute certainty of that. Get alone with God. Let Him work upon your heart and be certain of it. He does eventually start telling people, but by the time He does, there is no doubt what God has for him to do. And I think sometimes, if we're not careful, we use, we use the God has led me excuse to accomplish in our lives what really our will has been in the matter. And we do it so that other Christians don't criticize us for doing what we're doing. May God help us not to use God as a crutch to accomplish our own will in our lives. We get to verse number 13. Uh, let's go to verse 12 a minute. He says, And I rose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God, what my God, what my God had put in my heart. You say, Brother Greg, why do you emphasize that? Because we so often do our own will, don't we? Nehemiah knew that God had put something in his heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. Verse 13, And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, into the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem. If you have a pen, I, you ought to underline how many times it talks about him viewing. If you go down through this chapter, you'll find several times he talks about, I viewed this, and I viewed that, and I viewed this. He said, I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, and this is what he viewed, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. And I love verse number 14. Notice what it says here. Then I what? Then I went on. 
You, you know, what does it take to stop us as Christians? Do we come up to a task and we see the, the, the massive work that it's going to take? We see the hopelessness of the situation without God. And we say, oh, that's just too much. I can't do it. He, he sees, the Bible says he viewed the walls. And when he viewed the walls, he saw them. They were broken down. And he saw that the gates were burned with fire. And there's going to be some people that would say, oh, I think I would do like Nehemiah and I'd just be barging on ahead. You know, there's a lot of us sitting here today, and your pastor included, that battle this thing when a task becomes so big that we think, boy, I just, I can't do it. It's just, just too much. It's just too much. I, um, I, I rarely, rarely talk about this. But uh, when I was in college, <clears throat> my senior year, uh, God allowed me to uh, start a ministry for the church and the college that I was working at, uh, going in, uh, for inner, some of the bus kid teenagers, the inner city kids. They had a youth group for the drive-in crowd, but they didn't have anything. We had the bus kids for an hour a week on the buses, and folks, it just wasn't enough. You know what I'm talking about, some of you. You expect there to be a godly influence for an hour a week and that to overcome all the worldly influences the rest of the week. And uh, I was in college and uh, senior and worked and labored in that ministry for that year and really had a burden uh, for those inner city kids in Jacksonville. I, uh, I and some few men with me, <laughs> there were two or three fellows in college that had a like burden and a similar burden and we thought, Something needs to be done for these kids. We've got to do something for them. And uh, so we begin to pray and, and say, Lord, you know, what would you have us do? Uh, we're getting ready to graduate. We're getting ready to launch out in life. What would you have us to do? And I begin to pray, and, and the fellows that were with me began to pray. <clears throat> and um, we uh, felt that the Lord wanted us to open a, a shelter for teenagers where they could come in off the street. We were dealing with kids, and this is no lie, folks, and I can give you story after story. I, we dealt with kids 13, 14, 15 years old. When they would come home from school on Friday, mom would kick them out of the house and say, don't come back till Monday. We don't care where you go. Just don't come back till Monday. And these kids are out on the street trying to find some place to stay, find food to eat. Many of them getting into drugs. There was one young lady that got picked up by some men that, defiled her and, and she had scars all up and down her arms where she had tried to commit suicide after that. She was so wrecked and ruined and she got saved in our Bible club that we did on Saturday nights and our lady workers began to work with her and show her the love of God. She ended up going off to Bible college and marrying a preacher boy and is serving in ministry today. And these were lives that I looked at and was broken over and I thought God can do amazing things. He can save to the uttermost, can't He? And so we began to pray, and, and the Lord really just laid on our hearts. And there was a there's an old abandoned high school. It's in rough shape, and a company owned it, and uh, it would have been perfect. About uh, I think it was about forty four, forty five thousand square feet of space, and bathrooms, and dormitories everywhere, and commercial kitchen and I mean, you just you name it everything was in place to have a, a place for a shelter like that we got everything together the the fellows and I we began praying we had gone and uh, 
talked to people in other Christian groups that had children's homes and had found out the laws of the state and what we needed to do to do all this. We had gone to um, all the uh, the uh, local municipalities and talked with the people about the red tape that was going to be involved in doing all this. and Put it all together and went and sat and talked with the pastor of the college at that time and wanted to get his advice and his input on it. And uh, I remember sitting in his office and he said, Fellas, I think what you're wanting to do is a good thing and a noble thing, but he said, I think you're biting off more than you can chew. You ever had anybody do that to you? God has something great for you to do and they discourage you in it and say you need to start smaller. You, that's, you can't expect God to do that much. Not right off. I was discouraged, I'll be honest with you. I went back to my dorm room that afternoon, me and the fellas and... We sat, I remember sitting in the dorm room, weeping, praying. Those guys praying with me, and I said, guys, let's just pray through the night and see what God has. And so I remember that night, as we were praying together, I said, Lord, if you want me to do this, if this is for sure what you have for my life, you're going to have to hit me over the head. Those were the phrases I used. I said, you're going to have to just... Make it so apparent that there's no question about it. And uh, finally, finally went to bed, got an hour or so of sleep, got up for school the next morning. On our way to chapel, which was about middle of the morning, <clears throat> I walked in, sat down in chapel, and our president of our college got up and said, "Well, we have a special surprise for you today. Uh, children's home just showed up." This morning, they weren't scheduled. They just pulled in the driveway today on their bus, and they're going to sing in chapel and they're going to give testimony and how God had worked in their lives. And so this children's home was there. And I remember saying, "God, that's good, but it's not good enough." I said, "I've got to know. I've got to know." And they sang, and I sat there weeping. I got done with chapel and I went to lunch. And as I passed by the post office, I opened my mailbox and there was a letter in there addressed to me, hand addressed, from a children's home that I had never heard of before. Never gotten a letter from them before. Never gotten a letter from them since. I don't even know how they got my address. Writing a letter to me saying, I hope you pray for us. Sharing testimonies of some of their young people. And I remember thinking, Lord, that's good. That's good, but it's not good enough. I've got to know. You say, Brother Greg, these are all coincidences. Well, they might have been. I went to lunch that day and went over to my dorm and got ready for work. Every day on the way to work, I drove past the building that we were praying about, the schoolhouse and I'd been by it the day before, come home late that night, the night before, and uh, looked just like it had every other day I'd ever driven by it. And uh, that afternoon, I drove by it. And somewhere between the night before when I had driven and that afternoon, somebody had gone and hung about a 45 or 50 foot long banner across the front of the building. And it didn't have an advertisement on it. It didn't have a company name on it. All it said 
was remember Jacksonville's children. That's all it said. And I remember thinking, Lord, that's good. And it's almost good enough. I got to work and I thought, Lord, what am I thinking? My pastor was right. This thing's huge. I can't hardly pay my my college bill this month. These people own this building. They wanted $600,000 for the building and the property. I said, what am I thinking? I said, you know, maybe, maybe this is what you want me to do, but maybe my pastor was right. Maybe it was just too big. And I said, it was good, Lord, but I don't know that it was good enough. I drove home that night from work. And one of the fellows that had been praying with me about it was waiting for me to get there. And when I got there, it was after curfew. And I thought, well, why is he out of the dorm? He's going to get demerits for that. But he had gotten permission to go out to the parking lot and wait for me to get there. He said, I was on the phone. Some people in our church called me tonight. He said, it's the first time they've called me in all the years I've been at college. He said, they found out I was graduating. They were just finding out what I was going to do with my life after graduation. He said, I was telling them about our, our heart's desire to start this home for these kids. And he said, I told them about the building and all the things that we were wanting to do. And he said, Brother Greg, they asked me how much the building was. He said, I told them it's a lot. They said, well, how much? He said, so I told them. And they started getting excited. They said, we just sold a piece of property and have been praying what God would have us to do with the money. And they said, this is unusual that we had laid on our heart tonight to call you. They said, if you... If you guys go through with this and you want to do what that uh, that vision that God's given you to do is, they said, we'll buy you that building. And I didn't do it. I believe I'm right where God wants me in my life right now. But I look back with regret and I believe I'll give an answer and an account Because I was discouraged by someone to not do what I knew God had put on my heart to do. I was so burdened about it, so broken about it a year later. I began to do some things to try to see if it would be possible even to go back and make it happen again. And the opportunity was passed. I say all that to say this. I'm thankful for Nehemiahs. Who when the task seems bigger than they can do, they keep going on. They keep going on. Don't let the size of the task deter you from doing something great for God. Because it's not you that's doing it anyway. It's Him. And let Him do it. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. Lord, I am I am encouraged. I am so challenged by the story of Nehemiah. And uh, Lord, I pray that You would help us. Lord, there's 
younger folks here in the service. There's older folks here in the service. Lord, it doesn't matter what our age is. I think of Caleb in the Bible at 80 years of age, one of the the hardest mountain to, to be able to capture. Felt that that's what you had for him. Lord, may there not be one person in this building today that would look at a task you have for them or something that you've called them to do that they would look at and say, that's too great of a work. It's too big. I can't do it. Lord, may we rest upon you and allow you to do through our lives what you would long for us to do. I don't know what you have in store in the days ahead for me or for any of the people that are sitting here today. I don't know. I don't know what you have in store for this church. But Lord, may we never be guilty of looking at the size of the job and the size of the task and being weakened by it, being discouraged by it. May we never take the ridicule and the discouragement, perhaps the criticism of others, and allow it to discourage us and to deter us from doing what you would have us to do. Bless the lesson we've learned this morning from Nehemiah. May it be an encouragement in our lives that we can pray for great things and attempt great things, expecting that, Lord, your hand is not shortened, your arm is not slackened, your strength is not weakened, and, Lord, your resources certainly are not depleted in any way when we do great things for you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to rise to the occasion, that you would stir our hearts, Help us to be able to face whatever it is that you bring our way. To take it by faith, to put our rest and our hope in you. Bless the service to come. And Lord, may you speak to our hearts encourage us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.